What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. What is poppin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you once again without Andrew D. Bailey. I am, however, as usual, super pleased to be joined by Adam Frommel. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of NBA Math. We are continuing our player decade rankings for each and every team. We are up to the Chicago Bulls. Before we get into a conversation with him, I just want to continue reminding, imploring, begging, and pleading with everyone. Great review. Subscribe to us on iTunes. That's the best way to help out the show. If you've done all those things, if you're listening to us on another podcast player already, make sure you're downloading all our episodes. Please retweet the promotions that we're coming up with for these exercises. Anything you could do to help us continue to build this community, we'd be very much appreciative of. Last but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsor, betonline.ag, for making this podcast possible. You'll be hearing from them in just a short while. But for now, Let's get to talking some Chicago Bulls player rankings with Adam Frommel. Adam, how goes it? It's going pretty well. You, know, you and I were just talking before we started recording um, about how my, my almost 16-month-old son is, is learning his Marvel superheroes. So he can do the Black Panther Wakanda symbol. Um, he loves saying Yondu. So I, I feel like it's been a, a good, successful morning for me so far. You know he's going to end up being awesome because he's doing the black panther symbol already so he's already got that's good my taste hope in the marvel that's my hope it's like it's one of the few things i've done right so far i think just make sure he doesn't grow up to love thor too and then everything in his life will fall into place after that i mean that's going to be tough because thor is definitely my wife's favorite both because of the character and chris hemsworth um i look i like thor one and i love thor three but thor two was and i'm i'm pretty like i don't know what the word would be i feel like i'm basic when it comes to movies and tv shows and so you'll very rarely hear me say that I hate anything, but Thor 2 was just not great. I'll still watch it, but it it just it wasn't great. It's it's very bad. I'm totally with you there. Thor 3 was was excellent. I I, I don't I don't really like the first one either though. You know, just it was fun in the moment, but watching it back, I just there's not much to it. It just it, it feels kind of boring. The third one made you kind of wonder why they didn't inject that sort of personality into the first two movies, and so maybe it ruined the the first one a little bit. Right. I think like Taika Waititi was the first director who like really realized the the comedic chops that Chris Hemsworth has and and unleashed it. We could talk about this for a long time. Well, if you think about it, since we're doing the Chicago Bulls uh, player rankings for the decade, they're like the Thor one of NBA decade player rankings because it's not bad. Like it's Thor two. But there's probably better case studies. Like there, there are Thor threes out there, and it's just that the Chicago Bulls aren't it. 
that was a really forced and yet pretty solid segue. Um, let's get started. Let's get right into it, though. We have the top 10 players for the Chicago Bulls of the decade. Who turned up at number 10 in our composite ranking? Yeah, I think this is the first time it's happened, but there was unanimity um, for the number 10 spot. Um, the fans, me and you, all had Kirk Heinrich at number 10, which I think is a, it's a fun shout to a, a guy who, who most of his time in Chicago did not count for our purposes because he, uh, he left, played for a couple of other organizations before coming back to Chicago for the 2012-13 season. But he was, he was a solid role player, a, a solid offensive player who could distribute capably, who could shoot threes, and he, and he played a fairly substantial part on three straight playoff teams. So I, I, I get why we all wanted him at 10, even if uh, he's, he's definitely not the most glamorous possibility there. He was part of that subset of guards in Chicago that always seemed like they came up big during you know, what, like, just, that wasn't Derrick Rose, is my point. Like, those, <laughs> remember the, the Nate Robinson run? He was, Heinrich is obviously, he was in Chicago a lot earlier, and then he was back there a little bit later. But we think about Nate Robinson, uh, who was, who was the other one? They just became novel, and I, I feel like I just remember him having a bunch of moments with Chicago, uh, particularly after Derrick Rose did end up suffering his ACL injury, and he's back with the Bulls in 2012 through, I think it ended up being t- almost 2016, at that point. And I just remember him kind of, like you said, a, a solid playmaker, but just hitting, hitting shots and having games where it was, Oh, Kirk Heinrich was really, really good. And that's just what I so associate with him is that subset of guards who were not Derek Rose that always ended up coming up solid for, for the bulls. Yeah. And I think there's something to the captain Kirk persona too, where just his importance in a leadership and mentor role. Um, really can't be overstated too. So the, the, he, he, he definitely fills the intangibles criteria as well. And he, look, he, he shot fairly well for them from beyond the arc uh, during the playoff stints that fall under this decade, three of them, uh, in which, except for that, that latter one where he was three of nine overall. And so just having that uh, reliable, oh no, I'm looking at two pointers there. That was a rough postseason for him, but it's sort of having the reliable game manager I don't know if you would call him underrated, but I, I actually didn't expect him to turn up in number 10. I thought that the either you or the fan vote and then the composite by extension might have ended up turning in a, a different number 10 guy. But we'll get into those with the honorable mentions, obviously. Yeah, I, I very strongly considered Mike Dunleavy for that spot. Um, and I it was a last minute change that, that had Heinrich grabbing the 10th spot for me. I was torn with Larry Markkinen was was the guy, and I I still kind of regret leaving. Spoiler alert: leaving him off the list. Yeah, no, I uh, I I didn't really consider Mar- Markkinen that strongly, just because to me he's he's shown what he can do mostly at the end of that that twenty eighteen nineteen season where he he caught fire um, and and looked like a future star. But this this current season has has been disappointing for him. He hasn't been able to stay healthy. The offensive uh, prowess has just kind of dried up. Um, maybe it's because there's not enough talent around him right now. Maybe it's because he's learning how to defer to uh, to more um, to, to guards that are controlling possessions more than they did early in his career. But yeah, the, the fans had uh, Markinet at, at number nine. We both had uh, Nikola Mirotic at number nine, who did end up at in the ninth place spot on the composite rankings. Yeah, it's. With marketing, to your point, there's definitely been, it seems like, the even the past two years, because he was injured last year, dealt with injuries this year, and even when he was on fire, didn't really feel like he 
kind of ever reached that extra level as a scorer. And I don't know how much of that is maybe the, the Jim Boylan impact. A big thing in 2018, 2019 was they just got him the ball in terrible spots, both on the court and and in the shot clock. And then you look at the talent around him, and there's not necessarily a clear path to him you know, expanding his role, at least not clearly, particularly after the addition of of Kobe White. And you figure on having Zach Levine, you also want Wendell Carter Jr. to be able to uh, do things. So it's it's definitely complicated for him. I almost regret not putting him him on though. Nikola Mirotic has the he has the thereness factor over marketing when you look at the uh, the minutes played for the Bulls during during this stretch. Uh, only slightly though, eighteen minutes played for the Bulls. He was he was sort of fascinating. Do you remember him as being overrated or underrated as a shooter? I kind of feel like I tilt towards more overrated, where it was you expected him to be like this really. We would just called him this floor spacing four, this this knockdown shooter, and he his percentages never really seemed to align with that during his his time in Chicago. Interesting. I'm I'm in the opposite camp for him. Um, I, I think that the overall numbers are are dragged down by that rookie season um, in 2014-15, where he was really trying to adjust to playing in the NBA and playing in a competitive team where he didn't really have as defined a role. But after that, like as a sophomore, 39% on 5.2 attempts per game. He regressed in 2016, 17, 34.2% on 5.4 attempts per game. But before he was traded to the Pelicans in 2017, 18, like that was his, his magnum opus, 42.9% on 6.4 deep attempts per game. And it was that season where he really became like an offensive powerhouse and in, in a smaller role. And I think that's probably more how I remember him, uh, which is an inflated perception. But to me, the, the role that he grew in outweighed some of those struggles at the beginning of his career. The rookie season, probably if, if you're willing to throw that out, which is totally fine, that probably contributes to it because when you look at the splits, it's 31.6% from three, then 39, but then it's down to 34.2 and then it's up to, before he was traded to New Orleans, 42.9 with the Bulls that year. And so that's definitely, there's definitely something to that there then. It just felt like he was more of a, a seesaw and that he grappled with this, this similar identity crisis to what marketing is going through now. I don't think he was ever supposed to be the level of player that uh, marketing is supposed to be or was supposed to be, depending on how out on him you are now. Uh, it probably doesn't help though, when you look at how many injuries the Bulls dealt with during uh, those beginning years when he was in Chicago. And so he's dealing mm-hmm. with a lot of different types of not just personnel, but uh, the means by which, which they play. And so that certainly could have dragged him down too, but he sort of, he is a little bit synonymous with those, you know, Joe Kim error post Rose being an MVP candidate Bulls, even though he comes in later into the equation, he's still kind of associated with that group yeah no i'm I, I in total agreement with all of that i i definitely don't put him in the same category as as mark Kinnan. i i think that he never displayed quite as much all-around offensive potential it was it was more just like the shooting stroke that that buoyed his stock um so i i i never really felt that he was too much of a disappointment he was just uh he was just solid yeah, I, I don't view him as a disappointment at all. I'm just, I wonder if there's a case to be made to have, I, there's definitely one to have marked it over Heinrich. I wonder if you could also have him over Miritich. M- maybe not, though. Yeah, unless you just weigh the the peak that Markinen had in like in like late February of, uh, of what was it, 2019, um, where he, where everything clicked. I, I think that's the only 
the only real reasoning where I, that I'd be okay with for having him ahead of him. Attention Hardwood Knox listeners. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can also bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the nation's hot dog eating contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Who is checks in at, I believe we had a tie for number seven since we're then skipping number eight. Yeah, we do have a tie for seventh place, and uh, let's let's go ahead and start with Carlos Boozer, who's a really interesting figure in Chicago's recent history, just because solid offense, solid rebounding, not really much of a defensive presence. I think that he was largely underrated during his time in Chicago. Um, it was obvious that he was no longer the dominant figure that he was with the Utah Jazz earlier in his career. But then again, like, that 2013 playoff run, that was a big deal for me. And one of the reasons that that I had him at seventh, which is the same spot that, that both you and the fans had him. You know, during the, the first round series against the Brooklyn Nets that went seven games, 17.4 points and 10.6 rebounds per game, shooting 54.5% from the field. And then in the second round series, which was ultimately a loss to LeBron James's Miami Heat, um, like the, the last three games of that series, he was a huge offensive contributor for that team and kept them in a lot of games that would otherwise have been blowouts. So just performing at that level with the spotlight as bright as it was, um, was, was my reasoning for, for having him up at seven. I, I, not that I view having him at, I had him at eight in it. I believe, and so no, yeah, you, we we all had him at seven. Oh, yeah. we both had. Him. Oh, I did. Wow. Yeah. Well, anyway, I would have put. I considered putting him lower, and I definitely wasn't going to put him any higher than seven. I think you initially might have had him a little bit higher. Definitely, sort of a steadying scorer and rebounder during the regular season, but he was never the most efficient offensive player when it came to the playoffs. And he has that I really consider memorable, like one really good playoff campaign, and it, and it's the one I, I think it's the one where the Bulls played through 12 games was it that 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 their conference finals year in 2012 2013 can't remember right now but that uh to me they made it to the semifinals so I remember him being good that year but I just don't really remember him having any hallmark playoff moments and that's why I couldn't that's why I toyed with hey maybe Zach Levine should go in front of him probably couldn't put him any lower than seven or eight but I was of the mind that I re- I was really struggling to put him any higher. And when you get into, not to spoil anything, but when you get into cases for, if you're trying to talk about uh, Pau Gasol or, or Ataj Gibson, if you want him on the level, I think Gasol would probably be the the most likely one to where people would debate between he and Boozer. And I just, I struggled to, just for my playoff memories with Carlos Boozer, I sort of struggled to put him any higher than where we have him. Right. And I, I do think that, the thereness factor that we've talked about in pretty much every one of these episodes now uh, is important here as well. Um, I didn't realize until looking it up while while researching for these rankings that Boozer has played more games than Derrick Rose for Chicago this decade. He's uh, fourth on that list. He's fifth in minutes played, also ahead of Rose, ahead of Kirk Heinrich and Miritich. Um, so, so that definitely has to matter here as well. 
No, I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I think he's properly placed. His was just, he might have been the toughest one on the list uh, among anyone for, for me to pinpoint. For me, it was actually the guy he's tied with at number seven, um, which is Zach Levine. Uh, Levine showed up at fifth place in the fan vote. Uh, both you and I had him at eight. Um, spoiler alert, Dan and I have like almost identical rankings um, throughout this entire um, Chicago Bulls podcast. I think there's only one difference where our fourth and fifth places are swapped. But yeah, Levine was tricky for me because he has put up such massive scoring numbers and become such a reliable offensive presence. You know, at the beginning of, of last season, you know, when he was averaging like close to 30 points per game at the start of the year, it seemed like there was a possibility that he could even compete for a scoring title before James Harden decided to, to run away with that title. Um, but those numbers haven't really led to many wins um, during the, the three seasons that he's been in Chicago you know, 2017-18, they won 27 games. 2018-19, they won 22. They have only won 22 uh, before the season was suspended, uh, the, the current one we're in. So how do you balance those big offensive numbers that, to some extent at least, are, are stemming from opportunity that he likely would not be getting on a more competitive roster? I do agree with you to some extent, and the reason he doesn't, for me, doesn't get above Boozer and maybe into the Gasol-Gibson conversation is because he hasn't been in the playoffs, and there really isn't evidence that the way he plays elevates his teammates, and I think to expect him to be that guy probably miscasts him, but when you look at the players that have routinely been around Chicago, yes, Kobe White's good, yes, Chris Dunn, uh, before he was injured this year, was playing well, but they just haven't put a floor general next to him, even with Thomas Sadoransky, he's... I really like Thomas Sadoransky, but you don't have that floor general type, and it seems like he needs that type of guy around him. And yet, you look at the numbers, the Bulls offense is not good with him on the floor. And I, I do think that that matters. This isn't a Trey Young situation where, where Chicago would be competent, but then they'll fall off a cliff without Levine on the floor. They, they are worse without Levine on the court, but they're just also not great. And so that that's when he is playing. And so there's the evidence that maybe he's not really going to uplift an entire offense with the way that he plays. What I will say though, is when you look at his efficiency relative to the shots that he's taking, uh, it's absolutely absurd. The fact that he's shooting 38% from three this year on the types of attempts that he takes, he's over 36.4% on pull-up triples. He's taking a lot of shots off the dribble. Uh, I know a lot of people were worried about him coming back from that ACL injury and you know maybe we'll never see Levine get to the line at a high clip that might always just be a, a part of his game that we sort of lament uh, he's not D- D'Angelo Russell naked when it comes to free throw attempt rate but he's not someone that you look at and say oh like you can really trust him to get to get there consistently he still does get to the rim more than he was before the injury looking just at the frequency with which he he takes his attempts from point blank range and so to have that guy I really do think that there's value there it just takes a very specific number one someone that he can is forced to defer to I should say and then that makes both his job easier and makes him better and so I I do still think there's a really good NBA player there potential all-star but like you the lack of results in Chicago that is that really has to hold them back again it's not even just a matter of not making the playoffs because you can look at these Bulls teams and you don't have to put their lottery berths on him the fact that the offense I think since he's been here is not ranked higher than the 35th percentile when he's on the floor that is telltale of something and the team's net rating has declined when he's on the court in two of his three seasons. Um, and, and overall, over the course of those three, 
they've been 1.7 points per 100 possessions worse when he's on the court. And that's not to say that that he makes the team worse. You know, that's one of those situations where maybe he's not elevating, but if you replace him with a lesser player in his in that same role, getting those same minutes, obviously the team's going to be worse off. Um, it's interesting because I was I was going to make the Trey Young um, comparison as well for the exact same reason. Um, just looking at how how Young has put up numbers that have elevated Atlanta's offense, and we haven't necessarily seen the same effect. Um, in Chicago with Levine. The one thing I, I, I really want to see more from him, he's done a fantastic job throughout his career at improving his shot profile, um, especially the long twos. They've, the frequency with which he's taken long twos has declined every single season of his career. Um, he doesn't take floaters, though. And when he does, they're not good. Um, throughout his three years in Chicago, he's made 23.2% of his shots from between 3 and 10 feet. And that's the range where we so often see these explosive athletic guards, when that starts to click, everything starts to be better. Um, because if, if you're pulling a rim protector out where they have to respect that shot instead of just meeting you at the rim, you're making life a lot easier on yourself. Um, and and that's, that's the spot where I really want to see him improve. And I think he can just based on the touch he displays from the free throw line on, on three pointers. And as you mentioned, some of his shots are so difficult and he still makes them. So I, I have hope there. But that, that's the area where like, if that, if that clicks, he's going to skyrocket up these rankings. And then maybe there, you do wonder a little bit what happens if he does have less control over the offense. Does he, because there right. are a lot of players where I feel like rhythm or volume is important. And so if he can't dribble the ball 80 times before he's shooting as freely, could that have an adverse impact on his numbers? But he is one of the players where, look, we've seen, them, we've seen a team try to build around him now. I'd be very curious to see what he looks like beside a, a, a more legitimate number one. I'm wholeheartedly with you. Who's next up for us, number six? Next up at number six, we have Pau Gasol, who was eighth uh, for the fans and was sixth for both of us. Uh, he was an all-star during both of his seasons in Chicago, and I think it, it's yet another example of, of my theory that he's one of the most underrated players in NBA history. Um, I don't think he gets enough credit for the star he was with the Memphis Grizzlies. I don't think he gets enough credit for the role that he played alongside Kobe Bryant on the title-winning Los Angeles Lakers teams. And I, I certainly don't think that he gets enough credit for what he did in Chicago. Um, he continued to be just an offensive stalwart who could contribute as a, a secondary facilitating hub, as a, a primary scorer, as a guy who was becoming more of a stretch big um, but just because those those teams weren't as competitive as the ones that we'd seen just a few years earlier with peak pre-injury Derrick Rose and because he clearly wasn't operating quite at the same level that he did um, when he was in Los Angeles right before Chicago, um, I, I don't think he receives nearly enough credit. When you had first sent me your rankings for the Bulls, I was floored that you had Pau Gasol so high. And then we ended up putting him in the same spot because I forgot just how incredible his numbers were during those two seasons with Chicago. You talk about, you know, he, he all of a sudden really ups his three point volume, uh, taking at least a similar, uh, never had taken threes with that sort of volume. And he continued kind of doing it when he went to San Antonio and to see him in that second year, he's averaging an attempt per game, which is a career high at that point and shooting almost uh, 35% from beyond the arc that added real value just at, at that time in 2015, 2016, but it's, it's just overall numbers. When you look at his passing 4.1 assists per game in that final year with Chicago, there's 
weird, obscured value in rebounding, but consistently getting double-double tallies uh, there for Chicago. I, I really do wonder, too, what would have happened had he had been healthy for the, I think it was the 2015 playoff run, or the 2016 mm-hmm. playoff run that he wasn't there for. Uh, that Maybe that Bulls team is just a lot better uh, if he's available for that. So I, after looking at the numbers and, and sort of reminding myself it seems like those two years were forever ago because everything feels like it's forever ago <laughs> at this point. Uh, I, I ended up just being in in full agreement with you because those two years in Chicago were spectacular and, and he was contributing to good teams as well, which I really think needs to factor in. Right. And I, I, I think it also matters that he was in his age 34 and 35 seasons during those two years in, in Chicago. We, we've seen in the last half decade that he was – a decent lower minute contributor for the Spurs. And then he just kind of fell off the radar with the Bucks. I believe he was dealing with some foot injuries throughout his brief time in Milwaukee too. Um, but like that's a normal career arc for a guy who's in his late thirties. And I think it's just another reason that that perception of him has, has kind of fallen off. But I mean, his rookie season from in 2001, 2002, all the way through 2017, 18, he averaged double-digit scoring totals every year, and that's that's something that not a lot of players can say over the course of 17 straight seasons. Who do we have coming in at number five? So we're going to move on from my talking about how Pau Gasol is historically underrated to talk about Taj Gibson at number five. Uh, he was number six for the fans. He was number four for me, and he was number five for you. One of the one of the uh, the few spots where. There was an agreement between at least two parties. But yeah, I mean, Gibson, it, it like kind of exemplifies the, the fairness concept for this franchise. Second in minutes played only to Jimmy Butler over the last decade. Uh, first in games played by uh, 81 games, almost an entire season, uh, uh, more than anyone else. Never really became a, a, a floor spacing power forward, even though we, we originally thought that he could based on some of the mid-range results, but just a gritty, tough defensive player who who set the tone for a lot of these hard-nosed Tom Thibodeau defenses. And who also just basically for his entire Bulls tenure wasn't allowed to start until the until the very end. And I get there. Do you remember those debates? Whether Taj Gibbs, he eventually oh, yeah, started absolutely. playing more than Carlos Boozer, but they were the debates that should he be starting over Carlos Boozer. And so he started, I believe he started most of his games as a rookie when he was in Chicago. He did 70 starts. And then his uh, final season in Chicago, which was a partial season in Chicago, he started all 55 games that he played in. But I, I really could only echo what you said. Uh, just just a solid guy. There, there was that baby pick and pop jumper. You know, you wish you could have he could have extended his range, but he was at least knocking those shots down in many of those seasons at an above average clip. Uh, just another one of their gritty defenders that contributes to those teams where on paper it looks like they're shorthanded, but oh, they're churning out comfortably above 500 records and, and their problems in the playoffs. He was, he was a big part of all of that. I do sort of wonder what, what he looks like if maybe he plays more center with the bulls. I know it wasn't necessarily an option for a lot of the time that he was there, but I feel like his game, particularly on offense would have been much better suited for the, the five position. And maybe we appreciate him a little bit more, not only if he gets more playing time consistently enough in Chicago, but if, if that's a role that he would have played more often as well. Yeah, I feel like he basically did on defense just because of the pack the paint philosophies. You know, like the, the entire Thibodeau principle was that we're going to spend as much time 
in the paint as possible and kind of dare the officials to call us on, on lane violations on the defensive end. Um, so he did spend a lot of time protecting the rim and, and guarding bigger players on the interior. So I think we got to see that fully realized defensive version of him. But I do agree with you on, on offense where it, it would have been nice to see him working on drawing bigger bodies out towards the perimeter. And it, it might have facilitated further growth um, in that in that offensive arsenal. Who do we have coming in at number five? Uh, so Gibson was number five, but oh, at number me. four, at number four, we have Luol Dang, uh, who was number four for both you and the fans and was number five for me. You talk about underappreciated. I feel like most people now only remember the Luol Dang that was in a sort of, you know, a tail end of Chicago. Then he goes to the Heat. Then he's with, then he's with the Lakers. Uh, he was really, really good. There's the season, and well, that doesn't really doesn't fall into this purview. But you're looking at the first season, Derrick Rose's MVP season. He averages 17.4 points, 2.8 assists per game. Uh, his three point shot always kind of came and went. There were seasons where he hit it at a higher clip. Um, the years in which he took it with actual volume, though, it really dipped. He only had 2011, 2012, four attempts per game with 36%, uh, 36.7% shooting from beyond the arc. One of the best defense, uh, perimeter defenders, though, of his specific uh, era when, when he was healthy and, and in his prime and the minutes that he would play. Uh, two seasons with the Bulls, he, he leads the league in minutes per game, averaged 39.4 minutes per game in the lockout season, which is a little bit wild. And then the following year, leads the league in minutes per game again, 2012-2013, with 38.7. Just always so reliable in that respect. I do wonder though, and I'm not trying to throw this at Tom Thibodeau, but how many careers has maybe that type of mindset that Chicago had during that time, some of which was born from necessity because you look at what was going on with Derek Rose, even Joe Kim Noah missed a lot of time, but does, does Luol Deng, if he's not playing through what seemed like a couple of knee injuries, I believe during that span, mm -hmm. is his career lengthier? Is he at least relevant for longer? And I, I think that's a fair question to ask but during his time in Chicago he was he was really good I would say consistently he played at a fringe all-star level and that's super valuable to have when you weren't necessarily yeah there were times where he needed to be the number one or the number two but that's not actually why you had him man you stole my talking point I was I was gonna do some tips bashing here because I, I do think that the dang is probably the most egregious example of, of all the careers that I don't want to say ruined, but were shortened by the inability to rely on the bench and the strange willingness to leave guys on the court forever. Um, you know, Dang was pretty much washed by the time he was 30, which is, which is sad and not what you would expect from a guy who was able to contribute in so many different areas. Um, you, you covered everything really well, but the, the only thing I wanted to add was it always felt to me like he was really reliable from the corners, even if uh, even if the overall percentages weren't there. It seemed like so many times he was a bailout option in one of the corners, and and that was a shot that you could really rely on, and that I associate pretty strongly with this last decade of Bulls basketball. I'm just curious if you agree there. I would agree. I also I want to see if you can answer this question: How many all defense teams did he make? I don't think he ever made one. He made one, and I actually, one. I actually thought that was low. I could have sworn that he made two. Yeah, it's tough just because there are so many good wing defenders, and I think that that some of the the guys like him who do the dirty work and who are always taking those toughest assignments on the perimeter don't always get the credit they deserve. 
because he never really racked up steals or blocks like you see from a Kawhi Leonard or a Jimmy Butler. Um, and, and that probably held him back there. I'd agree. Who do we have at number three? This is where things get the top three were hard. The top three were really tough. Um, everyone had the same three people in their top three. Um, they were barely separated in our composite rankings. Uh, but at number three, we do have Derek Rose, who was number one from the fans, which really doesn't surprise me. He was number three for both of us. And he did draw over half of the first place votes from fans as well. Um, he did not appear on one ballot, which is which is interesting. He was ninth place on one. But f- other than that, he was in the top four for everyone. You know, Rose didn't really play as much as 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 we wanted him to, as we maybe remember him playing um, because of all the injuries. But you know, only 247 games. That's fifth place. Um, over the last decade for the Bulls, he's sixth in minutes played. But then that peak, you know, the the MVP season does count here. Um, the ensuing season before the onslaught of injuries began does count here. And it, it's tough to balance the the lack of volume you might expect with a superstar so associated with a franchise with that remarkable peak where you know, just one athletic layup or dunk after another, the the pure explosion driving the basket, unlike what we've seen from almost every guard throughout NBA history. Yeah, and look, it's not an, I'm, we're not trying to shit on him by putting him at number three either. His, and, and there are, I am not, the, the season of Derrick Rose that I'm most impressed with was this past year in Detroit, where he was just legitimately good, and it came at a time where everyone was out on him. His MVP campaign was spectacular. I want to make that clear. I still would have given the award that year to LeBron James. What I think really hurts his case is that, what I think really hurts his case is that so the years that qualify for this decade in Chicago end up being six seasons. How many times was he the best player on the team during that span? And a lot of the, when you're going to say no in a few years, it's because he wasn't available, but that needs to be part of it. And so you already touched upon it. And he's actually, because of when you look at a lot of the turnover of the, uh, the Bulls' supporting cast, he's actually fairly high in minutes played for the decade. He's sixth, which is, but that's solid. And that's enough to, if you're going to vote him one, I don't think it's something that I would actually quibble over, but the lack of availability following really his MVP campaign, or let's say just following the ACL injury and, in uh, 2012, but even then he had missed, that was a lockout shortened year. And I think he'd missed 27 games during the regular season. And so that, that lack of availability specifically, you know, didn't play, t- played about half the year, let's say a little bit more than half the year in 2011, 2012, miss all of 2012, 2013 only appears in 10 games. And in 2013, 2014, that stretch really ends up hurting his, let's call it the thereness factor for Chicago. And then he just wasn't, the same player when he came back and he put up, he put up numbers um, for, you know, when, his first season where he played in 50 plus games, 2014, 2015, he averages over 17 points a game that season. But you, you see that his efficiency really starts to take a dip. And I do know, and people have criticized him for his failure to adjust on the court. I actually understand his struggles there in that moment, just because of how young he still was and the trajectory that he was on, that wasn't something that he was supposed to have to do. We see stars, as they get older, struggle to really assume role player duties. There are ones that have made the transition more seamlessly 
than most. You know, Vince Carter is probably a good example, but it, it even took him a while to get there, and he battled his own health problems. And so this isn't me, and I'm assuming you as well, by putting him at number three behind the two players we're about to talk about, it's really not trying to take a shot at Derrick Rose. I just think his lack of, avail- of availability and his struggles post ACL, they're enough to make it so that he is by nowhere that he is nowhere near a consensus number one or even number two player for this franchise over the course of this decade. Yeah, I'm in total agreement with you. Um, And that was part of the reason I I really struggled with the order of these three players because I think there's a valid argument for any of them in the number one spot. Um, But yeah, I I think those post-ACL injury seasons were more detrimental than anything else just because of the volume shooting coupled with diminishing efficiency, coupled with a decline in, in playmaking ability because so much of his passing stemmed from those drives into the lane and then the kickouts. And when he's not gaining as much separation and, and creating as much space on those drives, the passing declined too. It was just, it was an all around, it was an all around dip and it was a little bit too much for me to overlook. Um, and then I, I think we also wanted to say on, on the Rose topic, um, and I, I apologize if I, I'm not phrasing any of this as well as I could. Um, we, we did, we did waffle with how we wanted to handle the, the, the rape accusations that stemmed from his time in Chicago recovering from an ACL injury. I don't really want to, to dive into the details of the case, but we ultimately didn't let that affect how we placed him in these rankings because those, those were not made public and did not become a big storyline until his Chicago tenure was over. So it it really did not affect the the on court element, um, which is all we were concerned with for these rankings. So if you wanted to to drop him in your personal rankings because of the moral transgressions and because of what that does to perception of of him as a person and a player in Chicago, that is totally valid, and we will in no way diminish those feelings but we just wanted to explain that that we did think about it and and that's ultimately how we chose to handle a a, a sensitive topic well said and i echo everything that that you just dropped it was uh the focus tried to stay on basketball but i won't fault anybody for holding him down in their rankings beat because of it it's going to be a part of his legacy and it can be a part of his chicago legacy as well but we were trying to look strictly at Uh, off the court rankings here and so if anyone thinks that we put him too low at three that part of his legacy actually did not factor into us putting him at number three and it's a it's an interesting segue to number two um which is is jimmy butler uh he was unanimously two uh for for me for dan and for the fans and he was an example of where off-court decisions and behavior actually did impact the on-court product and it's just because of the the ugliness of his his exit um from chicago to minnesota in 2017 you know maybe if he had handled that a bit differently the trade return might have been a little bit different they ended up trading him and justin Patton to the timberwolves for chris dunn zach levine and and markinen um which has worked out well but could they have gotten more i mean um, has it worked out well let's let's yeah i mean it yeah i think that's fair but like at least you did get to two consistent contributors out of it. But for me, that was an example of how like, yeah, like obviously that's nowhere near as, as serious an occurrence, but because it did have a a direct tangible impact on the Chicago bulls franchise that draw that, that made it harder for me to put him in the number one spot, which I originally did want to do because he was just so damn good during the end of his Chicago tenure. 
Like those those last th- uh, three seasons in Chicago where he was a 20-point scorer, where it seemed like he was coming up big in, in crucial moments every time, where he was developing into to more of a playmaker for his teammates, a reliable shot maker who could create more for himself. Like I think that was aside from Rose's MVP season, the best basketball we've seen played by any member of the Bulls in the last decade. You almost sort of forget that, you know, prime Jimmy wasn't really in, like the best of Jimmy Butler wasn't in Chicago for as long as you remember that he was because his minutes were just curbed his first two seasons. He barely played as a rookie. And then even that third year when he was playing a ton of minutes, they didn't really give him the keys to the offense. Like that's a, I think that was something that they, like he he showed out in the playoffs that year. I think it was in the 2012-2013 playoffs is kind of what put him, it seems, on like uh, Thibodeau's map. Uh, but they didn't really start giving him like real control over the offense in the following season. Like it took a while for him to get there. And so, you know, you mentioned those uh, final three seasons in Chicago where he's clearing 20 points per game and turns into kind of the secondary playmaker. That wasn't really like th- those were the three seasons. Like when you're ranking Jimmy Butler's time with the Bulls, maybe you do look at that 2013 postseason maybe you do look at the fact that yeah you know in uh 26 minutes a game he he plays in all 82 games in 2012 2013 during the regular season really establishes himself as this hard-nosed defender like that that certainly matters and it's part of it but uh it's those final three seasons 2014 2015 2015 2016 2016 2017 that really make his case and I think it's fair to say that maybe he's the like the best player the Bulls have had on their team this decade, but I don't think he was at his best or at his most ideal for long enough in Chicago to supersede the guy that we ultimately placed in front of him. And I think part of that is just the the story of how he became a star. You know, just uh, at Marquette, he he never became anything indicative of a future NBA superstar, which is why he, he came off the board at 30th in the 2011 NBA draft. And, you know, it, it took him a, a few years to carve out that role. He he only played 8.5 minutes per game as a rookie. It wasn't until his, his junior season where he really earned a bigger role because of his defensive abilities, but he couldn't shoot that year. You know, he slashed 39-7, 28-3, during that third season. And then everything clicked in the fourth year. Uh, and and that was the beginning of that three-year span that that really elevates him into this spot. But I did want to ask you, do you think Jimmy Butler is going to be a Hall of Famer? And if so, what jersey is going to represent him? Wow. Basketball references Hall of Fame probability, which is based on you know how how players have fared in in certain statistical categories that tend to correlate with entry into the Hall of Fame. Gives him a 42.5% chance right now. Um, I, I would imagine that's only going to go up because he's only 30 years old. He's currently playing at a, a very high level despite some shooting struggles for the Miami Heat. And I, do, I think we have at least a few more peak seasons. So I would imagine he's going to finish his career north of 50%. But has he made too many ugly exits from from places and, and ostracized too many people with his ridiculously sleep-deprived work ethic? <laughs> Yeah, everyone needs to get up at three in the morning so that they can go work out with Jimmy Butler. That is not healthy, by the way, just for anyone. anyone Do not recommend. I'm not a sleep expert because I don't get enough of it, but I definitely know that getting up at three in the morning to work out after you probably didn't go to bed till at least 11 or 12 is definitely not not healthy. My guess would be he gets into the Hall of Fame. That would just be my gut guess. I would say as of right now, he has to go in with the Bulls. That could change if he won 
ends up spending as much time in Miami. Let's say he makes it through all four years of this contract or, you know, the first three opts out, signs another four-year deal and ends up playing, I'll say a half decade or longer in Miami and just the going there is smoother. Maybe he makes it to a finals. If he wins a title in Miami, he'll, he'll certainly go in with the heat would be my guess there. As of right now though, I'll say he'll go into the hall of fame and then he's just going to be most remembered for his time with the bulls. And because part of look, part of his stardom is the route by which he got there. And, right. and, and that's where, that's where Chicago just comes in where it's, Oh, this, everyone might've talked about his work ethic when he was first drafted by the bulls, but he went from playing you know, 8.5 minutes per game through 42 regular season games in the 2011-2012 regular season, barely playing in the playoffs that year, to then all of a sudden he's just super important to what they're doing on one side of the floor and then jump ahead two more years and he's also their best offensive player. Right. But to be clear, you're you're ruling out the Minnesota Timberwolves as, as an option? If we have, as Zach Lowe has talked about this a lot, if we have like a Hall of Fame weirdness part of, like if there's a weirdness sector of the Hall of Fame, uh, we oh, definitely need to play with Carl Anthony Towns for sure. Yeah, Jimmy Butler's tour de force, where he preferred to play with the third stringers and beat up on Minnesota's Minnesota starters. That has to go in there. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. Everyone should know who number one is, but but can you say it for us, Mister Frommel? I can. It's Joakim Noah. Uh, he was third place for the fans. He was first place for both of us. Um, I don't have any regrets about that, just because I, I think the consistency with which he contributed throughout his time in Chicago. Um, you know, we, we don't get to count the first three years of his career, but it really wasn't until the third one where he developed into just this, this relentless defensive contributor who really sparked Chicago's ability to establish its entire defensive identity. Um, his ability to, to shut down the interior and to show off some lateral quickness, switching on to other players. Um, and, and then his ability to, to facilitate as a big man was just massive. You know, he, he never scored more than 12.6 points per game in Chicago. And yet it just didn't matter. You know, he didn't need to score to be a hugely impactful player, which is why we saw him finish fourth place in the MVP voting in 2014, which is probably looking back on it, maybe a little bit of an overreaction to the season that he had for a really good team. But still, like, he, he absolutely deserved consideration on the ballot despite not even averaging 13 points per game. And that's that's something we can't say a lot of, about a lot of players, but it is something you can say about a DPOY who is also one of the best passing bigs with one of the weirdest shooting forms we've seen. Yeah, he basically releases it at the hips. Like it's a that, sidewinding yeah. push shot. Yeah. Uh, so awkward when he was not, not even just air ball free throws, but when you watch his live jump shots, like game action jump shots, those are the ones that those hit a little different uh, or really they don't hit at all. But anyway, is number fourth really severely overrating the season he had that year? Maybe James Harden that season. <sighs> yeah. I, I think it is a little bit. Um, yeah. I, I mean, Harden, I think you can make an argument for Steph that year as well. Um, I think Chris Paul is always undervalued. Um, I just, when you look at his impact on both sides of the floor for Chicago, uh, with the exception of LeBron James that season, when you look at everyone who's in the top, but I, I guess aside from Chris Paul, in the top seven of MVP voting, I'm not sure anyone else aside from Chris, uh, Chris Paul and LeBron James had more of a two way impact on their team. If you want to throw Kevin Durant in there, that's fine. 2013. I kind of want to throw Kevin Love in there too. Like, I know that the Timberwolves were awful. Yeah, but I mean, I'm always against the 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 argument about like 
all around value there because if you're that good on offense, even if you're bad on defense, it still outweighs being decent on both ends, which Noah wasn't decent on both ends. He was good on both ends, but like that was the season love averaged 26, 13 and four, you know, and I, I think that there's an argument there too, just because I, I don't personally believe that team success should factor into MVP voting as much as it does, but that's admittedly a, a personal bias here. I think that that Noah had a case for four. I'm just not sure that he would have been there for me. But regardless, like he belonged in the discussion. Yeah, I mean, look, he anchored the second best defense in the league that year. And I guess the case against him would be he meant. I think what really sells me on the two way argument for him is because of how important he actually was to the offense. Like it wasn't just someone who was setting screens and, and rim running. Like they relied on him for his facilitating. Yeah. The counterpoint to this would be that the Bulls had the third worst offense in the league that year when they were so reliant on him, the same season that Derrick Rose played in only 10 games. And so I definitely could go back and relitigate the the MVP uh, the MVP voting for sure. But 2013-2014 was peak Joakim Noah and is the season I'll just always remember from him. He absolutely deserved the Defensive Player of the Year award. And he's another one of the players, and maybe we'll look back and say this about Jimmy Butler a little bit. We already said it about Dang, but if he didn't play for Tibbs for so long, I just wonder if he's... Yep you know, more relevant in the NBA for a longer stretch of time after leaving the Bulls. Shout out to the Knicks, though, for for signing him in 2016 while bidding against absolutely nobody. So this this isn't a dream, and it really happened, right? That he signed with the Clippers and was preparing for some sort of comeback before uh, before the season was suspended? Yeah, No, it wasn't a dream. And also, he was really good when he played for Memphis last year for a little bit more than half was. the season. Small burst, but you know what? That's fine. And he, you know, what he does, he'd be harder for teams to play now than he was, you know, four or five years ago, just because mm-hmm. I don't know how is he going to move on defense now? Prime Joakim Noah could really chase guys around, but now you factor in a slowed down version of Noah with the lack of floor spacing on offense. You probably can only get away with him for maximum 12 to 16 minutes a game, but that's, that's also fine. I would have welcomed seeing him play again because he actually was pretty good in Memphis last year. So if you're if you're starting a team from scratch, how would you rank Noah's 2013-14 season, Jimmy Butler's 2016-17 season, his final one in Chicago, and Derrick Rose's MVP season in 2010-11? I'm taking Jimmy's final season in Chicago. Really? There's just a, look, I'm going to appreciate the efficient three-point shooting from him that year on let's call it modest volume, 3.3 attempts per game and, and above the league average. And then when you're looking at what Noah could do best, it wings who can face up and even and guards as well, they're just going to have in, inherently more influence over the outcome on offense. And then so if you want to say Derek Rose, uh, his MVP campaign was better offensively than Jimmy Butler during his final year in Chicago, I would probably agree with you. But now we have to factor in what Jimmy Butler does as an individual defender at the other side of the floor. And then I, I think that's what really sways me there. If Derrick Rose was a better three-point shooter that season or really at uh, any point during his career in Chicago, maybe you can tilt the scales toward him for me personally. You're free to pick whoever you want, but the answer is pretty clearly Butler for me. So I think Rose had the best of the three seasons, but it, it's also the one that I would least like to build around just because I think you can find the poor man's version of that most easily. And that's kind of why I, I would pick Noah's uh, over Butler's just because of scarcity. Yeah, I, I don't think I think it's easier to find some sort of of replacement 
for for Butler on the wings. I think it's much harder to find that true defensive player of the year candidate who's also capable of serving as an offensive hub. So if I'm starting from scratch, like I think that's the most valuable addition to my team that makes it easier moving forward and, and placing players around him. Fair enough. People are going to take this as a, a, a Derek Rose slam podcast, but it's really not. No, and, I mean, like again, like I think he had the best season of any bull over this decade. Who who are our honorable mentions that we can run through? Right. So we had uh, in the in the end vote, uh, moving beyond the Tiritich at number eleven. Again, he was number nine for both of us. And then we venture into uncharted territory here. We have we have Nate Robinson at twelve. We have Dwayne Wade at thirteen, which. Uh, I guess some hometown bias there, maybe. I, I couldn't figure out why he got so much love, considering how little, little time he's spent in a Bulls uniform and how we kind of try to forget that that happened. Yeah, that 13 is way too high for Dwayne Wade. That doesn't even, we don't even need to go deep into that. So tied at 14, we have Kyle Corver and Ben Gordon. Uh, tied at 16, we have Ronnie Brown and Lopez. Tied at 18, we have Mike Dunleavy, who I strongly considered putting in my top 10, um, and Keith Bogans, who I did not consider putting in my top 10. <laughs> uh, at, at 20, we have a tie between Bobby Portis and Rajon Rondo. At 22, we have a tie between Doug McDermott and Wendell Carter Jr. Maybe a little too early for Wendell Carter Jr. Um, I like where your head's for, at, though. Yeah, it's a, maybe a little projection there. Tied at 24, we have... A very interesting group of guards. We have Rip Hamilton, we have Campaign, we have Jamal Crawford, and we have Jimmer Fredette, who somehow got a sixth place vote. Uh, I, I shout thank out Jimmer Andrew for voting in our polls. For, I was going to say shout out Andrew D. Bailey for voting. Also a possibility. Um, at twenty eight, we have Jabari Parker. At twenty nine, we have a tie between Justin Holiday, Kobe White, Tomas Sadoransky, and Omer Ashik. Um, who I, I was surprised that Ashik didn't get a little bit more love just because of his defense over his time in Chicago. And then um, tied at 33rd, we had C.J. Watson and Otto Porter Jr. And finally, in a tie for 35th, we had Andres Nocioni, Antonio Blakeney, Shaquille Harrison, D.J. Augustine, and Chris Dunn. Names that I did not anticipate saying today. I will say I've heard stories that Shaquille Harrison defends his ass off in practice. So maybe that's maybe well, maybe they were waiting that. That's fair. I hope so. I'm because I'm not sure what the other argument is aside from the name. Maybe you got him confused with Shaquille O'Neal. Like I get that it happens. I'm disappointed. Aaron Brooks didn't get any love. He was the other small guard that I was thinking of that would go kaboom mm-hmm. from time to time during yeah, his yeah that one season. Yeah. So I actually this seemed like the of the teams we've done so far. This is number five. I feel like it had the least egregious honorable mentions Dwayne Wade at 13 is pretty bad but it's also Dwayne Wade and he's his own brand yeah I didn't really have many qualms with the other ones maybe Keith Bogans but I think that that was a trolling ballot I want to say because they had Carlos Boozer in first place Ronnie Brewer in second and Keith Bogans in third um yeah that so seems high. shout out to, to to whoever went that route I would love to hear how you value certain things on the basketball court seems like a good discussion to have but yeah I, I think that there were there were fewer egregious responses here well Adam this was fun as always we have the Cleveland Cavaliers coming up next I believe 
uh, we do. We will be recording those uh, at some time in the near future. If you guys are enjoying these podcasts, please remember to rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes. Definitely remember to participate in all the polls that Adam is throwing up. Follow MBA Math at MBA underscore Math. That's where all those surveys are are going up. And we are also we will have a landing page for you by the time you listen to this on MBAMath.com with all the podcasts we have recorded for each team. You can also go on YouTube. Search Hardwood Knox. You will find the playlist where we have all the decade rankings. And again, please subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes. We haven't had some written reviews in in quite a while. Uh, The ratings are going up a little bit, but we'd like to see both of those just inflate just a little bit more. So write us some reviews, throw us some ratings, subscribe, tell your friends, family, enemies, random people on Twitter, because hopefully you're not seeing them in person at the moment. Until next time, though, we leave you with a shout-out to Keith Bogus. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.